Well, I uh, had to make uh, a decision going into today that this talk was either going to be very, 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 very long, or I could shorten it and take what I wanted to do in one week and push it out to two weeks. Now, you may be absolutely distraught to learn that I decided to push it out to two weeks. So we're going to make a start this morning, uh, and then we're going to finish it off next Sunday. The other thing I want to say just up front is that I am glad that we got to this passage today uh, and not a few months back. Because a few months back, we shared with you uh, something of the financial shortfall that we had as a church. Uh, If you remember, we we said that we needed an extra £14,000 by the end of this month to hit our budget for the year. Uh, And then on top of that, we needed a further increase of £50,000 for the coming financial year. Now, thanks to your incredible generosity and I do want to thank you for your phenomenal generosity. Thank you for those who give so faithfully and so sacrificially. Thanks for those who just recently have started giving, maybe for the first time, those who have increased their giving. We are so incredibly grateful uh, for the generosity uh, of this church. Don't take that for granted one bit. Thank you so much. Thanks to your generosity, we've covered the £14,000 that we needed to get us to the end of this month, and we've got the best part of £36,000 towards the 50000 that we needed. And the reason that makes me glad, apart from the obvious, is that it lets me, it allows me to teach with real freedom from this passage in Luke where Jesus addresses what we do with our money and possessions. Because I think one of the worst possible scenarios would be for Jesus to go after your heart, to go after your joy, and because of a financial need in the church, for you to hear all of this just through the filter of, oh, okay then, I'll give a bit more to make up the shortfall. That would be to miss the point of this passage. You see, it is possible to be financially generous without being generous in heart. Jesus is always and everywhere way more concerned about your heart. And because we're now well on the way to meeting the financial need in the church, not quite there yet, so let's not be complacent, but almost there, It does free me up to just go after this like I think Jesus is going after this in this passage. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, And just to warn you at the very outset, uh, on the surface, this really is a very confusing parable. uh, Possibly the most confusing parable that Jesus ever told. Hopefully in half an hour's time, you won't still be thinking that. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples. Now, as we saw last time, whenever Jesus is teaching, it's very important to know who he's talking to. And so Jesus is teaching his followers here. But there's also another group within earshot. Look down to verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. That's our crowd. That's who's in the audience here. Let's see what Jesus says to them. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And so this guy just got fired. Now, it's not a case of get out right now. It's more a case of try and put everything in order, bring it to me, and then you're done. And so this guy's going, what on earth am I going to do? How am I going to take care of my family? How are we going to eat? Where are we going to live? How am I going to survive this? And so he hatches a cunning plan. Verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. Now, probably need to give some explanation there because that probably doesn't give you much of a sense of the debt. Uh, This was a significant debt. It would have been the equivalent of the best part of three years' salary to the average worker at that time. Just look at the manager's response. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, let's make it 1500 And so in a moment, he cuts the debt in half. Look at the next one. Next one is a lot bigger. And he asked the second one, how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. Again, just need to give a bit of explanation here. 30 tons of wheat would have taken about 100 acres of land to produce, would have been worth about 10 years' salary for the average worker. So again, this is a very significant debt. He told him, take your bill, let's make it 24. And so he doesn't quite cut it in half, but that is still a pretty substantial reduction. Look at verse 8. This is where it gets ever so slightly confusing for a lot of people. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And so this guy's pretty devious. He goes, where where am I going to live? Where am I going to stay? How am I going to get food to feed my family? Uh, How are we going to survive this? And he hatches this plan of cutting these debts so that when he is kicked out, he can then go and knock on the door and say, do you remember back to when I saved you five years of salary? Remember that? That was a big deal, wasn't it? Now, if truth be told, I'm struggling a bit here. It would really help if I could just stay with you for a little while. That's the guy's plan. And the master catches wind of this and he goes, brilliant. And not with sarcasm either. Now, there are all kinds of explanations for what this guy did. Some people argue he was merely removing the interest from the debt. Uh, Back then, uh, there were certain uh, restrictions in terms of charging interest. It could be he was actually helping out his master by preventing him from acting illegally and cutting the interest. Other people argue he was simply removing a chunk of his own commission, so uh, he was cutting his his own profits uh, so as to provide for himself in the future, or he could, just plain and simple, have been ripping off his boss. Ultimately, we don't know, because Jesus doesn't tell us. And at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter, because that is not the main message, that is not the main point of this parable. 
the main headline here is that he is reducing the debts to create future goodwill for when he finds himself unemployed and in need of some favours. And his master sees his cunning, sees his shrewdness, and commends him for it. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus is saying that people in the world are way more shrewd at what the point of this parable is than the people of the light, God's people. And Jesus is saying, really, it shouldn't be like that. So here's what I think we've got to unpack. What is the point of this parable? So every parable teaches one lesson. If you, if you take a parable and try to squeeze the life out of it, like, well, the oil here is the Holy Spirit, and the wheat, obviously that stands for the Lord's Supper, and the dishonest manager, that's probably Ezekiel. I mean, you, you can just get yourself needlessly confused, because a parable teaches one lesson, not 17. And so the question we've got to answer for ourselves is, what is the lesson here? I think the next few verses are going to help us out. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it fails, notice he didn't say if it fails, he said when. Just reflect on this for a moment. How does worldly wealth fail us? First of all, it disappears. Probably all of us have had that moment at some point in our life where we've looked back at what we've earned over the last three or four years, then we check our bank account and we're like, what on earth did we spend it all on? Uh, often it disappears just because we fritter it away or it disappears when our car breaks down and we're faced suddenly with an unexpected hefty repair bill or we lose our job, or our circumstances change, something like that happens. So that's one way it fails us. It simply disappears. Or another way is we get so much of it that we can do absolutely anything we want. Anyone in that category? I would love to chat later if that is the case. Uh, That's where you get the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, I drank pleasure until there wasn't anything else to drink and it brought me no joy at all. I I, I bought houses until there weren't any bigger houses to buy, and I just got bored. I had women until there wasn't a type I hadn't had, and I still wasn't satisfied. There's not a single pleasure that I haven't maxed out, and yet I still remain lonely and empty and frustrated. So it fails us that way as well. It just doesn't meet our deepest needs. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't really relate to this. You certainly can't avoid the third way that our stuff fails us. Third way it's going to fail you is you are going to die and then who cares? Really that is the whole point of this parable. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it fails 
you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, Jesus is, is kind of doing an if this, how much more kind of argument. If this is the case, how much more this? So let's just think about what this manager did. He actually gave up short-term gain and invested in something that was long-term more valuable, which for him was relationships with people who might help him out in the future. And Jesus is turning all of this around and he's saying, look, even inside a secular framework, even at outside these four walls, out there in the world, people know that the best thing to do is to put your money, put your resources, put your stuff into something that will increase in value. I mean, I'm sure most of us would agree that it'd be better to limit how much money we're making now if it means in the long run we're putting our money into something that's going to get more and more valuable, right? Just the way people are. Even inside the secular framework, people know that. And so he's asking us, okay, what will really last? He's saying, look, if you put all of your money just into savings, if you put all of your money simply into investments, you plow all of your money just into a home, those are not safe investments because eventually all material things will be gone. It will fail, maybe in this life, certainly in the life to come. So why don't you put your money, put your stuff into eternal things? I mean, think about it. All that isn't eternal is eternally out of date. So put your money into things that will last forever. Do something, invest in something you can never lose. Send your money forward into something that will literally last for eternity. Here's what's interesting to me about what Jesus says here. If Jesus just said, be generous so you get eternal riches, I would suggest that isn't enough. Because I understand the logic of it, You can't really argue against it. I mean, if there is a God, if Jesus is who he claims to be, of course, that's what you should do with your money. I get the logic. But I don't know that that is really going to make me open up my wallet. Because I don't think, at the end of the day, it moves my heart. But what Jesus says here does... And I want it to move your heart too. See, it doesn't just talk about glory and mansions and streets paved with gold when he describes eternal dwellings, does he? What does he say there? How does he describe heaven? He talks about friends. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it fails, and we've seen it will fail, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So he's not just saying, be generous for the sake of being generous. It is way more than that. 
It's being generous with your money, being generous with your time, being generous with your home, being generous with your stuff, so that when it fails, you will still have something to show for it in the form of people, friends, who've been saved for eternity through your generosity. He's saying, use your money here to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. I was not saying, use your money to buy friends. It's not quite making that point. But he is saying, use what you have, whatever you have, to invest in things that will bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus. Michael Wilcock, who's written a commentary on Luke, I think puts it perfectly when he says this. Here is the point of this parable. Although these things, your property, your ability, your time, they all belong to this life only, says Jesus. Yet what will happen to you then, when you pass into that life, will depend on what you're doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. So let's return to the parable and try to piece all of this together. The parable is all about a man who became aware of his future. Most of us aren't aware of the future, correct? Most of us have no idea in what tomorrow holds. It's an educated guess at best. We don't know the future. Most of us aren't sitting here going, well, in two weeks I'm going to get fired. Six months after that, my house is going to be repossessed. Then I'm going to be on the streets. Most of us don't get that information. The manager got that information. He was told what was about to occur. And so with that future in mind, he began to live, he began to prepare, began to plan for that day of reckoning. It's like he concludes, it's more important for me to have friends than to have money in the bank. So I'm going to actually forego the money in the bank to create friendships. And the master says, shrewd and brilliant. I wish the children of light would live that way. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? He's bemoaning the fact that most of his followers, most of us, live as though there is not going to be a day where everyone will stand in front of him and give an account. He's saying, why is it that the world can figure this stuff out about their short lives, but Christians can't seem to get this? Why is it that the children of light aren't as shrewd as the children of darkness? And here's what he means by shrewd. This guy in the parable, he's doing everything he can to provide for his future. He's losing sleep. He's working out a plan. He's not just burying his head in the sand. He's doing all these things because he knows that this is coming. And so he's using his resources to secure friends for the future. And Jesus is going, man, my children would live so differently if they remembered how all of this ends. They would be way better stewards of what I've entrusted to them. They'd be way more concerned with using their resources to ensure their friends are safe for eternity. I think that is the point of this parable. 
as we read on, Jesus wants us to realize that everything we do matters. Everything we do has significance. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then he drives the message home, I think in the most challenging of ways. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I'm not standing here telling you there is anything wrong with having money. But ultimately, you cannot serve both God and money. You just can't. You can't chase one without forsaking the other. There are going to be instances, there are going to be times where saying yes to an opportunity would be disobedient before God and there are going to be times where you're going to lose out on financial gain because God is your number one priority. So he's going, you can only have one number one. You can only have one real pursuit and he's pushing us here. What is it? Because one day what it really is, is going to get exposed. Two examples that Jesus gives us in the next couple of chapters. Later on in this chapter, in fact, you've got the parable of Lazarus and the rich man as one example. That would be the negative example of not living this way. Then later on in Luke 19, there is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who encounters Jesus and his whole life is turned around. So you've got these two examples. One's the positive, what happens when the gospel penetrates the heart, where it goes deep? The result, open-handed living. Zacchaeus is saying, I'll give half of what I own to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone, I'll give away even more. This is that generosity that begins to happen when you experience God's grace as a reality in your life. The other example shows the regret that comes from not heeding the warnings. The man who pursues riches instead of God ends up separated from God for eternity in hell. He, he, he pleads for his family that they'd be warned of the consequences of living like this. The response is, they've already got the scriptures. And if they ignore them, then they have no excuse. Listen, I say this gently, but you have no excuse. Do you see through the lens of there will be a day when I stand in front of God and give an account? Because it is coming. Grace? Yes, absolutely. I'm not saying you're going to hell. That's not my message. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying it's going to be a really uncomfortable experience for some of us on that day if we don't take heed of the 
warning. I'm telling you. This is an area that I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray about. We're to live counterculturally when it comes to our money. It, it means we're to be generous with our money. We don't hoard, we don't get selfish, we don't abuse people or trample on people to get more. We, we use our money for good, for the good of the people around us, ultimately for the glory of God. That's what I'm praying for. I'm begging God, please, loosen up our hands. Because if Jesus doesn't command anything except for trying to bring you into joy and have his name exalted, then God's saying, hear this parable, hear this story, consider this, consider this, look at this, look at this. It isn't just about raising more money for the church. It goes much deeper, way deeper than that. So rest assured, uh, we're not going to pass the offering buckets around twice this morning. Uh, I'm not saying as a result of this, take all your money and now give it all to the church. He, he didn't hear me say that. But at the end of the day, you have nothing that God would consider yours. Everything you have, God views as his entrusted to you. And how you use it now will affect eternity. As we've seen today, it will affect not only your eternity, but also the eternity of people you know. So use your money, as Michael Wilcox says, to create a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. Very practically, how can we do this? Let me just make a few suggestions to help you out before I draw to a close. First of all, if money fails, but people last forever... Kind of makes sense to put your money into people's needs. Don't just hoard it for yourself. Put it out there into people, things that help people, things that mend broken lives, because people ultimately are more important than money. As a church, we give a proportion of our income to Christians Against Poverty. We send it to the central office to help fund the brilliant work that they do. Give a proportion of our money to the Caris Neighbour Scheme. Uh, again, doing uh, a wonderful job, uh, primarily in Ladywood, with advocacy for asylum seekers, work with uh, children and families, uh, also work with the elderly. We give a proportion of our money to the Bridge Project run by Oasis Church here in Birmingham, helping people with recovery from addictions. Recently, we're, we're, we're planning to uh, send money uh, out to Ukraine uh, to help some of the churches out there. Uh, many, many people have been displaced because of the troubles that we've seen uh, on the news. want to help them uh, in the crisis that they're facing. Uh, also looking to send money to uh, help with the aftermath of the Ebola crisis in Western Africa. Uh, and yeah, we hear on the news kind of that the crisis is pretty much over now. But actually trying to rebuild the economy and put things straight uh, after what's happened. want to help uh, some of the churches out there in the aftermath of this. But it's not just about money. You can give your time right now. I know that uh, our Christians Against Poverty Centre uh, could do with some more befrienders. Uh, you, you don't have to be an expert uh, in handling debt. Uh, you don't have to be the one that negotiates with uh, all the, 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 the different businesses. We need people who will simply 
go in and be friends to one of the CAP clients. If you want to know more about that, Owen is actually in the room right now. We'd love to chat with you uh, a bit more about that. Uh, next Sunday, uh, we have Time for Tea. We run it every kind of six weeks. Uh, invite a, a bunch of uh, older people to come and have tea uh, and meet people uh, from the church. Uh, more people would come if we had more drivers to take them there. Uh, again, very practically, you can give your time, you can give your car to help out. Uh, if you want more information about that, uh, have a chat with uh, Helen, my wife, who's currently the kids, but she'll, she'll be back. Uh, later on chat with her uh, uh, about that Uh, uh, the Caris neighbour scheme could do again with more befrienders Uh, right now there's a need in terms of the uh, work with uh, older people for 20 volunteers who'd be willing to give just an hour every week or two to go into the home of of an older person uh, who's uh, lonely or vulnerable uh, be friends to them don't have to just give money you can give your time you can open up your home. So thinking behind the goal for this year that we've set to uh, have 500 meals with our friends. The whole point is not just having nice meals, but uh, being proactive, planning to invite people into your home or go out with your friends to take the next step with them, to develop friendships for eternity. You can give your time, you can open up your home. You can pray. Again, one of the goals we've set for this year. I want to see 250 people across the church praying for one nation and three friends every week. Pray for your friends outside the church that they would know Jesus for themselves. And the motivation for all of this? Ultimately, it's love. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul urges the Corinthians to give their money away to help with a famine affecting churches in another part of the world. He says, look, I don't want you to give your money away because I'm ordering you. I want you to do it out of love for others. Do you want to know how love for others makes you generous? He goes on to say, think about Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. He's saying Jesus Christ is the one friend who emptied himself of everything he had to turn enemies into friends. Jesus wasn't an unjust, dishonest steward. He was the true steward who gave up all his wealth, everything he had, laid it aside to make friends for himself for eternity. We were his enemies. And it was only by going to the cross that he turned enemies into friends. Now because he has done that, because we have been the recipients of that ultimate friendship, we can know we are going to last forever. We're going to live with him forever. And So won't you now live today in a way that is shaped by that knowledge? Won't you allow your love for Jesus and your love and compassion for the people around you to provoke you to greater and greater acts of generosity. Let's pray together.